Good morning. Uh, it is good to be back with you. I, I was not here last year, but the year before I was here, and then the year before that I was here. And I was uh, thinking back to uh, those times with you all, and so it's, I guess now in the fourth year with a, a gap year, it's, it's great to be back with you. Uh, I am looking forward to preaching through the whole letter of Jude, and that's only 25 verses, uh, so that's not too daunting. But you will find that this, this short letter is packed full of uh, meat for the church, uh, far more than what we're going to be able to deal with in the next uh, few days. And so I do hope that it creates in you an appetite or hunger to, to know it more. One theologian says that it's probably the most neglected letter in the Bible, uh, certainly in the New Testament, uh, that gets very little attention, but it should more. I do believe as we uh, explore and, and spend our time over the next couple of days in this letter, that we're going to realize it is very much a reflection of what is happening currently in the, in the church, in our society. Um, these things were true not just in Jude's day, but in ours as well. And so I'm, I'm excited to uh, unfold that before you and spend all of our time in this uh, little letter. And so the question before us uh, really is one of identity this morning in knowing who we are and in question form, it would be who are you? And the reason that that's important is in this very introduction, uh, Jude spends the first two verses not with a command or an, uh, an imperative of do this. He'll get to that. But, or, you know, it's really the question of the indicative of, of being not doing initially. And so you see a division in the first two verses. So look at that with me in verse one and two. Jude says he is a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And then he tells us who he's writing to, to those who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. So this is the indicative. There's no statement of action here. It's simply a statement of recognition. This is who I am. This is who I'm writing to. Uh, Jude follows a common first century letter writing pattern of a greeting, introduction, and then who he's writing to. Then verse 3 and 4, you see a charge. Beloved, though I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, and here's the charge, to contend for the faith. That's the imperative. So you have indicative B, imperative do, dividing the first four verses. One and two is the indicative. Three and four is the imperative. Contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints. And then he gives the reason why in verse four, because certain people have crept in unnoticed. So that's a general structure of these first few verses. So then back to the question is, who are you? Jude tells us who he is in verse one. That he's a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And I find that interesting because we know now from his own hand that he's James's brother. And then he tells us who this James is, that he's the brother of Jesus. So interestingly enough, Jude doesn't say, hey, I'm Jude, the brother of Jesus. He says, I'm Jude, the brother of James, who's the brother of Jesus. And you might ask yourself, why would he even introduce himself that way and not just out with it, Jude? Hey, I'm Jude. I'm Jesus's brother. And, and there's probably speculation about why he does it this way. But I think 
uh, at the, the end of the day, he recognized the glory of his own brother Jesus. And so it's a posture of humility that he takes to say, I am a servant. Uh, there's two words that are translated in our English servant from the New Testament. One is where we get our English word deacon. And, and that means servant. The deacons are the lead servants of the church. The other word is more aptly translated slave. It's the word doulos. And that's the word that Jude uses here. He says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, I grew up with two older sisters. One 18 months older than me. The other 10 years older than me. My dad used to say that my sisters were going to make a man out of me. Um, because they were ruthless with me. I was, the, I was the baby. I was the only boy. They contended that I was spoiled rotten. I said, absolutely not. You know, school of hard knocks here. Um, which, joking. But they said I was spoiled because I was the baby and the only boy. And at, at no point would I or they ever think that either one of us, any of us, were perfect, worthy of worship. And if you ever grew up with siblings, either older or younger, I, I'm, I'm making a, a plea here that for Jude to say that he was a slave of Jesus is an internal testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. Because if you had siblings, who of you would say, my sibling is worthy of worship? <laughs> Perfect in everything they said and did. And for this guy to say, hey, I'm the brother of, of James who is the brother of Jesus and I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. To consider that he's the, the brother. I think if we think on that for a little bit and pause over it, it is an incredible testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ that his own brother would worship him as God. So think about your siblings and think about the sins of the past that you know. If you've ever, you know. And then, so, so Jude is telling us that he's a slave of Jesus and a brother of James. He's saying, this is, this is who I am. My identity is a servant, a slave to my brother, Jesus. And then, and then he tells us who we are if we are in Christ. I want you to catch that from the end of verse 1. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now there is, there is a depth and a richness to this idea of being called. Everybody has a calling, right? Do you, do you know that we get our English word vocation? So if I ask you what's your job? And, and you say, this is my my occupation, my vocation, that comes from a Latin word that means calling. Vocatio. So your calling is what you then talk to me about what you do. You know, when you meet somebody, the first two things that you ask them is, hey, what's your name? What do you do? Right? That's, that's how we interact with each other. We start to talk about callings. And we all have lots and lots and lots of callings. If you are a spouse, that's a calling. 
You've been called to be a husband or to be a wife. If you're a parent, that's a calling. You've been called to be a mother or a father. If you're an employer, that's a calling. An employee, that's a calling. And then we could pack it on. There's hundreds of callings that we all have. But none of those are greater than or could ever rise above what Jude is talking about in this kind of calling. All of those are secondary. And here's the reason why. All of those callings could end tomorrow. I, I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I'm a, a friend. But God could turn all of that on its head. He could change any of that. Because those are temporary. Secondary. But the kind of calling that Jude is talking about is that it gets at the heart of who are you. It's the indicative. Not what do you do, but who are you. And here he says, I'm writing to those who are called. And this is a calling from God that is about your heart before the eyes of the Lord. So he defines it for us within the same verse. You might have missed it, but we're going to slow down over it. To those who are called, and I would say that what he says next is the definition of calling for Jude. Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Who are the called? The called are loved by the Father and kept by Jesus. That's, that's who the called are. He defines it for us. So if you are loved by God and if you're being kept by Jesus, then you are one of the called. How do I know I'm called by God? Because you are the recipient, the benefactor of His love and His sustaining grace in your life kept for or by Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that the only reason that you are called is found not in you primarily, but in God. So I want you to think about that. Why would God call you? Well, the reason is either in you or it's not. It's one of the two. And the reason that Jude gives for your calling is in God, that it is His love, that it is His love poured out on you that is the foundation for your calling. This is the difference between grace and works. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. That's Paul in Romans and Galatians. You can't prove yourself worthy or righteous or good enough to God by the things that you do. So if you are called by God, the reason for that calling has to be in Him, not in you. Uh, Spurgeon said it this way, God had to have loved me before the foundation of the world because there was nothing to love in me after I was born. He had to have loved me before I was ever born because there was nothing to love in me after that. And, and that gets after what I believe as we continue to look in Jude is a, an extreme challenge for the church because it's a challenge for you and I is to think of ourselves as better than what we really are. Paul says it in Romans that way. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. 
So now we're, we're digging into this question of who, I, who am I? Well, I'm called of God. Why? Because He loved me. Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses puts it in these terms of, of Israel's calling. He says that Israel was called not because they were the greatest among the nations and not because they were righteous. He says they were chosen by God because of God. It's His purposes, His plan, His love poured out. And then kept for Jesus. So when you consider this, a lot of times we think that in our callings, yes, I've, I've been saved by God. Now I have to prove myself to Him. So yes, I acknowledge that salvation is by grace. He loved me. He gave Himself up for me. And so now I've got to try to walk the line. Not get out of it one way or the other. You know, toe the line. And, and so if I mess up, if I mess up royally, then His love's going to change. So yes, I'm... I'm in by His grace, but I'm going to stay in by my works. And, and that is a constant, consistent, internal battle that you and I face on a day-to-day basis. We define it that way at times. And how are you doing? Well, it's a good day. Well, what makes it a good day? On the religious side of it, on the spiritual side of it, I read my Bible, I prayed, I didn't cuss out too many co-workers, you know, uh, I didn't have too many negative thoughts about the people around me, I didn't lose my temper too much with my kids. I, I start to define goodness and badness based on my performance before the Lord. So I'm in by His grace, but I stay in by my works. And here, Jude says you are called because of the love of God and He is keeping you for Jesus, or Jesus is the one keeping you. And, and you might not think of your calling that way, but that's exactly how Jude defines it for us. Who am I? I'm called. Why? Because God loves me and He is keeping me. See, it's grace that not only saves, but it's grace that sustains. Philippians 1.6, Paul says it this way, that He who began a good work in you, beloved by God, He who began a good work in you, He's going to bring that work to completion. He is going to finish what He started. That burden, that responsibility is on Him. So your confidence that you won't fall away, your assurance that you're going to be saved to the very end, always has to be found outside of you. As soon as you turn in on yourself, you're going to stagger and stumble waver and falter because there's not enough consistency. There's not enough goodness. So I, I, I want to ask the question before us today because I believe this is where Jude takes us. Is what's the greatest threat to the church today? Alright, so I'm, I'm packing on the questions. One is who are you? But now, I believe the question for this entire letter, for these 25 verses, is this question, is what's the greatest threat to the church today? Because what we're going to find is that question explored over and over and over again in this letter. Jude was written in uh, somewhere in the 60s, not 1960s, you know, hippie kind of era, but 60s, first century, 60s. 
And he's writing to a church that he doesn't designate specifically which church he's writing to. And I believe that there's an application there in that it's, it's universal to any church and every church. And if we extend this 2,000 years to us, it's certainly applicable to today. So he tells us that we are in Christ, loved by God and kept by Jesus. Salvation belongs to Him, past, present, and future. And it's His work, it's His grace, it's His responsibility. And, and, and the heavy lifting belongs to Him. And this is who we are. And then He says in verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to us. Order here is significant. You can't have peace in your life without the mercy of God. And you won't have love in your life for God and for others without Him extending mercy and then the peace that's derived from that. And then love flowing up out of it. This is who we are. Called by God. Loved by Him. Kept by Jesus. Experiencing mercy and peace and love abounding. Now, what do we do? And so He tells us in verse 3, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith delivered for the saints. And the reason for that contending for the faith is this, because certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago, designated for this condemnation, ungodly, perverting grace, and denying our only Master and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if your identity is in Jesus Christ, then there is a specific outworking of that in fighting for faith. That's what it means to contend in verse 3. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That means to fight for the faith. So, if I am in Christ, then I'm going to fight for faith. That's the purpose that Jude gives for the entire writing of this letter to the church. In fact, he said that his desire initially was to write about this common salvation. So we don't know what that letter would have looked like. It could be concluded that Jude set off to write a letter, at least his intent, to talk about his brother Jesus. And to talk about their common salvation. His and the, the Christians that he's writing to. He wanted to write about that. He set out to write about that. But then there was a, a turn in Jude's mind for why he's writing this letter that we have preserved for us for thousands of years. And it was because certain people had crept in. Uh, you've probably used a $50 bill or sometimes now even $20 bills or $100 bills um, and, and gone to a retailer or to a store and opened up your purse or your billfold and handed the clerk a 20, a 50, or a 100. Especially with the 50s and the 100s, what do they do when you hand them that bill? They'll do this number, right? Looking for the, the strip. Or they'll pull out a marker and mark it. I was reading about that because there's this, you know, you might have heard it before. It's a common sermon illustration that the way to tell a counterfeit is not to examine all the counterfeits in the world, but to study the real thing. 
because counterfeiting is such a precise art form now and the technology developing over and over and over again, it's, it's virtually impossible to stay up with all the different methods of, of counterfeiters. What you study is the real thing, the real McCoy, and, and everything is examined against that criteria. That's why Jude is setting us up to say, who are you? You have to know, before you could ever know what a counterfeit is, you have to know who you are. But then in knowing who you are, then in fighting for the faith, you're going to see, you're going to see the fake. You're going to see the counterfeit. You're going to see the, those who claim to be something that they're not in knowing who you are. That's the first call for Jude. And then, in verse 3 and 4, he's telling us to fight for the faith because there are counterfeits among us. That's the answer to the question. What's the greatest threat to the church today? Is it on the inside? Or is it on the outside? It's, it's easy for us to think the greatest threat is out there. Because you turn on the news. I mean, we're getting ready to go into a presidential, presidential election year. I mean, you, you, you don't have to listen long to hear all the rallying cries about how evil all of our opponents are. Whatever position you take, it's, it's the same. So whatever your political position, the greatest evil is your opponent. I mean, that, that's how we... And then for the church, we take that same position. Often, we think, okay, we're in here. Our greatest opposition is out there. But that's not what Jude says. Don't miss it. Jude says certain people in verse 4 have crept in unnoticed. He says the greatest threat is on the inside. Not on the outside. We're not at war with the world. The church is here for the sake of the glory of Jesus in the salvation of people not yet saved out there. Do you know that when God is done with our purpose in, in molding you and shaping you into the image of Jesus and using you to see other people come to know Him, we're done. That, that's when Jesus returns. The Gospel will go out into all the world and then the end will come. That God, and, and Peter says this in 1 Peter, is actively on mission to build for Himself a people who are living stones for His dwelling. And as He builds this spiritual structure that is us, that is people being built up into a holy temple for His dwelling, the last block in is the last block in. And then Jesus returns. In the mind of God, there is one person who will be the last person saved on this earth before the return of Christ. And when that person is saved, Jesus returns. So you and I are here with a purpose of both God's work in us to shape us and change us into the image of His Son and to use us to see others come to know Him. And then the end. 
And so within that, we're not against the world. We're for the world. God has sent us into the world to be lights in darkness. We're for them. Salt and light into the world. That's not the enemy. The greatest enemy you face personally is your own sin. That's your greatest enemy. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through 3, Paul writes and he says that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, along with those who followed the course of this world, who were sons of disobedience. Sons of the, the one who is the prince of the wicked. The principles, the principalities, the powers, Satan. So in the outworking of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, you have three great enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's how historians and theologians have, have expressed that in shorthand. Three great enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And the greatest of these is the flesh. Your personal sin is your greatest enemy. Again, Peter, writing in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe verse 10, says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Maybe you've never thought that the greatest enemy that you have is on the inside of you, which is your sin. But then corporately for the church, the greatest enemy, the greatest threat, is also on the inside. It's those who are not in an active war against their flesh. Who are following their flesh headlong. But they're not out there. They're, they're in here. And so Jude tells us to contend for the faith. And the battle line, first and foremost, is your faith. That you are in a daily fight for faith. That you would believe God. That you would take Him at His Word. That you would obey Him. That you would follow Him. That you would trust Him. Come what may. That's the battle line in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. To fight for your faith. The faith. But then as a church, collective, to contend for the faith. And, and the reason I'm emphasizing the word the here is because for Jude, as he says in verse 3, to contend for the faith, this is a body of doctrine that he's talking about. So as you are of the faith, you believe savingly in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. And now we start to talk about who is this Jesus? We sang it as we recited the Apostles' Creed and went into the next song. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, was risen, dead and buried, was risen. He ascended to the, the throne at the right hand of God the Father, from whence He will come to judge the living and the dead. Believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, Big C Church. Believe in the forgiveness of sins. This is the, the most ancient of our creeds. The Apostles' Creed. And it's, it's a body of doctrine. It's the faith that we are unified in. 
And so we are to contend for that, to fight for that. Why? Well, because there are those who deny that. Not out there, in here. And this is verse 4. This is what Jude unpacks for us. He says, there are creepers in the church. They've, they've come in unnoticed. And they are designated for condemnation. God won't be fooled. And, and this is a truth that we can rest in. Paul says it in Galatians 6, 7-9. through 9, He says, don't be deceived. God won't be mocked. People are going to reap what they sow. But you continue to do what is good. Continue to do what is right. So all that to say, we don't have to think that somebody's ever going to get anything over on God. He's not backpedaling. He's not on His heels. He's not scratching His head. He's not thinking, huh, didn't realize that about that person. No, Jude says that certain people have crept in unnoticed and they've been designated long ago for judgment. For condemnation. God's not going to be fooled. He's not going to be mocked. People are going to reap what they sow. And then Jude tells us who those who are going to be judged are. They're ungodly. They're godless. They pervert grace into sensuality and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus. All of these things relate to a life that is characterized by its fruit. Though they might say that there's something true about their life, it's denied by their actions. I had a professor, an ethics professor at Southeastern Seminary that used to say stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. And so, a tree is known by its fruit. You can't hide it for long. And, and, and you ask the question of this text, how is it that they got in unnoticed? How is it that these folks that Jude is highlighting who are in the church could creep in unnoticed when they're godless, Practicing sensuality because they're perverting grace and denying Jesus. And I, and I think the reason why for us today is because Jesus takes us to a parable that communicates this very reality is that you can have a counterfeit in your midst that to the quickly glancing eye they go unnoticed. But given enough time and pressure and circumstances, what's on the inside comes out. Jude's going to talk to us more about that because that really is the rest of this letter is talking about this reality. And that brings us back to the question is, who am I? Who are you? Now, he sets it up to say, the church, the true church of God are those who God has poured His love out on who He's keeping by Jesus. And yet, within that church of those who would profess to be that, there are many, many, many people who are not what they seem. Who are not what they claim. Because it's not just the profession of faith. 
but it's the possession of it that truly makes all the difference in the world. Where Jesus preaches that is in Mark chapter 4. And I'm just going to summarize it really quickly. But in Mark chapter 4, He talks about four four soils. There's one seed. Oftentimes we kind of confuse the parable and say it's the parable of the four seeds. It's, It's really the parable of the four soils. There's one seed. And in the parable, the seed is the Word of God that goes out into the world. And the seed falls onto four different soils. The first soil is the beaten, trod path. And Jesus tells His disciples when they come and say, what does this even mean? He says, well, that, that path is representative of those who are quickly plucked up by Satan. So the Word goes out and, and it never takes root, ever. Satan quickly cl- comes and plucks it up. And then the second and the third soils, the second is the rocky soil. And the seed falls among the rocky soil. But being rocky, it quickly takes roots, but the roots aren't deep. Well, Jesus, what does that mean? Says the disciples. And Jesus says, well, those who fell among the rocky soil are those who quickly respond to the Word of God. But He says, when two things happen, when persecution or trial happen, they wilt away because there's no depth. So you consider that. It looks very much like the real thing. Root, seed, shoot. But then, because of trial, this ain't easy. This costs me something. There's pressure. This might mean my job. This might mean my reputation. This might mean my social status and standing. We're in a very rapidly shifting world. Post on Facebook what you believe is a biblical view of marriage. See what happens. Alright, so so when trial or persecution comes, it's gone. Because it had no root. But it looked for a while like the real thing. The second was the seed that fell among, or I'm sorry, the third was the seed that fell among the thorns. And Jesus says, and the thorns grow up and choke it out. Well, Jesus, what does that mean? And he, and he says it explicitly. He says, those are the ones who because of the desires of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth, of possessions, of material gain. And there's a, a third reality there. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things. It is choked out. Choked off. Dies. So you got trial and persecution. And you got desires for other things, deceitfulness of riches, and concerns for this world. And yet, in, in the economy of the Word going out and the seed being present, 
The first one is out of the picture. Satan plucks it up. But the next three, for a period of time, all look the same. The last seed is the seed that grows and produces a harvest 20, 30, and 60 fold. It, it takes root and it produces fruit. But the second, third, and fourth seed for a period of time in the life of the church all look the same. Until either deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things, concerns for the world, trial, or persecution come. And then you have one standing. Really. And, and many, many pastors and preachers and theologians and writers and authors have been speaking for a long time that the American evangelical church is comprised predominantly of second and third soil kind of faith or folk. Who are you? Who are you, beloved of God, kept for Jesus to contend for the faith? Do I believe? Is this, is this true of me? Where do I find my identity, my worth, my significance, my calling? First and foremost, not what I do, but who I am. And then in, in answering those questions for myself, am I called by God contending for that faith in my church, in my world? Am I fighting for that faith? Fighting for other people that they might know the God who is my Lord because some have gotten in and they're ungodly. They're using grace as an excuse to do what they want to do. They're perverting it. They're twisting it. Well, I'm under grace. I can live however I want. And you never got it. You never understood it. And they deny our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. It is not as though they deny Him with their lips. They deny Him with their life. Something else is their Lord. Something else or someone else is their Master. In 1999, Todd's going to appreciate this story as a Longhorn fan. In 99, Mike Leach, who is now, I think, Washington State Cougars head coach. Uh, Mike Leach is one of the crafters of the air raid offense. You know, it's just bomb it out. Put your quarterback in the shotgun and just throw, 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 throw. Leach's quarterbacks always are leading the nation. And Leach at that time was the offensive coordinator for Bob Stoops at Oklahoma. It was Bob Stoops' first year, and they were playing Texas in the Red River Shootout. Uh, Texas was with Mac Brown. They were undefeated. They were ranked, I think at that time, number five in the nation. And before, on the Wednesday before the game, Mike Leach decided to craft a decoy offensive scheme and to plant it in hopes that Mac Brown and Texas's defense would pick it up and change the scheme of their defense based on a dummy script for his offense. So he devised this plan. He went to one of his grad assistants and to a, another player on the football team. I think at the time was the tight end. And those guys had a tradition. They all dipped Copenhagen. And so what they would do is before every game, they would huddle up together before they went into the locker room, before they came out, and they would take a dip of Copenhagen. And so Leach had crafted, elaborate, what his entire offensive scheme was on a card. 
And then he had his grad assistant scripted, cued to after you take a dip, act like you're going to put that thing in your belt as we're running off to the locker room, but don't put it in your belt, let it drop to the side. And so he did that. And it came off like clockwork. Leach runs out uh, off the field, but he stands just out of eye shot and watches. And one of Texas's grad assistants sees the script. He picks it up. And Mike Leach said that he could see his facial expression and he knew, I got him. So this guy picks up what he thinks is the offensive script now for Oklahoma. He takes it to two of their defensive coordinators. One of the coordinator was Tom Herman, who is now the coach. of He was a grad assistant at the time, who was now the coach of Texas. And what Texas did is they completely changed their defensive scheme based on that dummy script. What happened in the game was that within the first two plays, Oklahoma scored in two plays, seconds off the clock. Within the first ten minutes of the game, Oklahoma, which was a huge underdog, they were five and six the year before. This was Bob Stoops' first season. They were up 17 to nothing because of this dummy script that Texas had completely changed their defense. Finally, after that, the second play of the game was a 44-yard touchdown pass. And so Texas defense, they're looking at this thing and they're, they're reading it, they're watching it, they're changing their entire game plan based on it until Oklahoma, who was un, undermanned and outgunned and supposed to, they were huge underdogs, supposed to be losing, they were up 17 to nothing. It still stands as the biggest comeback uh, in like 30 years of Texas football because they came back and won 38-28. After Oklahoma went up 17-0, they threw the script in the trash and they realized we'd been had. Mike Leach wrote about it in a book that he, he published a couple years ago. And until then, Texas was never certain that it was a dummy script, although they, they conceived that it was. And so they threw it in the trash, they went back to their game plan, and they routed... Oklahoma, they came back and was the biggest comeback in 30 years for Texas. What's funny is that Leach, when he was asked about it, after they did separate interviews, ESPN uh, kind of revealed the story, I think two years ago, about what happened. And so as Leach was being interviewed about it, he said, well, that serves them right. They're a bunch of cheaters. And he said, if they, this is Leach, he said, if they'd have been paying attention to their Sunday school lessons, they'd have never used it in the first place. <laughs> It's like, dude, you created the thing. you got to take some responsibility, right? And so this decoy script that changed the game plan and for a time, until they toss it in the trash, caused the, this Texas offense, Texas defense, the entire Texas team, who should have been blowing them out from the jump, to be losing the game. And I think when we, when we think about the church today and about who you are within the church and about the fight that you're in, both for your own heart and soul against your own flesh and for the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed in the world, the greatest threat that we have are the decoys on the inside proclaiming to be something that they're not. See, it's, it's the glory of Jesus 
the perseverance of His people and the purity of His church. Praise of Jesus, perseverance of His saints, and the purity of His church, which are going to be the greatest lights, the greatest agents of transformation in our world. So we don't know what His purposes are, except that He's not done. And we know that's the case because you've got a breath in your lungs. When you don't anymore, He's done with you. But as we sit here and breathe, He's not done with us. The praise of Jesus, your perseverance, and the purity of His church for the faith is the greatest transformative agent in our society, in our culture, in our world. And where that's corrupted, where His praise is corrupted, where His people are corrupted, and His church is corrupted, there's little known difference. It's a tarnished light. But where those things are pure and growing and proclaiming, watch out. I don't know that our society has seen a people that on fire for the Lord. I pray that for myself. I pray that for for God's church. I pray that for our, our country. Revival begins with us. As Todd prayed, and this is our closing here, revival is less about unbelievers becoming believers, though it is certainly that. In the history of world revivals, there is a, a characteristic of God's people being broken for their sins and confessing them before the Lord and turning from them to Him and God using them. God using them to be a light in the darkness. Let's pray that for ourselves.